The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open, then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are in the home stretch of our series through the book of Revelation. We've been going chapter by chapter through the entire book of Revelation. This is the last book of the Bible, and in some ways it's probably the most important book of the Bible. This book of the Bible helps us understand uh, the story of God from beginning to end, what God is doing, what end he is working to. Now, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, uh, there have been some pretty spicy chapters in this book of Revelation where it's like we hear a lot about judgment, we hear a lot about the enemy, these battles that are coming up, and, and it's sometimes it can be hard for us to um, really work our way through this. But I promise you, as we come to chapter 20 and 21 and 22 in the coming weeks, we're really getting to the good stuff here. It's like when John was writing this book, he he made us walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He made us walk through the dark parts to, to really feel the despair and the brokenness and the darkness of the trajectory of our world as long as sin and evil and death were reigning to lead us to a point where we're just longing for some sort of renewal. And so we are finally getting to the good stuff. Uh, when I started Revelation, uh, I remember saying that, that to, to help us understand what's going on, because it is such a complicated book, there's a lot of visual, there's, uh, it's a, a tricky genre of literature and the apocalyptic, so there's a lot of imagery and really bizarre stuff that we've been seeing. We really have to be able to understand John's writing, who's, who's the apostle who wrote this particular book as Jesus revealed it to him, writing as a, a pastor, as a poet, and a prophet. Now, as a, as a prophet, when John writes this, yes, there's, there's things that are in the future that he's dictating for us. He, he has the ability to see into the future, uh, this revelation that Jesus has given him, and he's writing this down for this is what the end times are like. But he's also a prophet in the way that he's speaking truth. He's telling us who God is, what he's capable of, who we are. And so he's, he's helping us to understand these truths by, by kind of blowing them up in sort of a poetic way. 
See, when John writes, the, the imagery that we've seen throughout this book of the Bible, even in some of the, the sense that we see today, John is writing in a way that's meant to light our imaginations on fire. John is a bit of an arsonist in that sense. He's, he's using symbolism and, and metaphor to help us really grasp, to get like a visual understanding of what God is doing and so that we can understand these big truths. But at the same time, he's writing as a pastor. He's not writing for the sake of information. He's not writing you just to tell tell you what's going on so you know in your brain what's happening. When, When John writes, he's writing as a pastor. He's writing not for information, but formation. He's trying to shape God's people into a certain type of people. Now, the challenge with Revelation is that we can drift out of that mindset of John as a a pastor, a poet, and a prophet. And we can gravitate toward reading Revelation in a more informational way. Like, I just want to know what's going to go on so I can anticipate it, maybe build my bunker. Uh, Or we look at it and it's like, this is literal stuff that we're trying to wrestle with. How is it that these things are literal? And one of the chapters that's most susceptible to being uh, taken to and and read in uh, informative and literal lens is Revelation chapter 20, the chapter that we find ourselves in this morning. In many ways, Revelation chapter 20 is the most debated passage in all of Scripture. The reason for this is that it introduces a 1,000-year reign. The the millennium is what it's referred to. In a time where... uh, Christians are flourishing because Satan has been bound and trapped in this sort of, he calls it the abyss, this, this, this cage. And so because of this, Christian influence spreads throughout as Satan awaits his final judgment. Now the debate is, revolves around when does Christ come? Does he come at the beginning of this millennium? Does he come at the end of this millennium? Is, is there a different way to think of this altogether? And we could really just nerd out here and spend the next 45 minutes talking about different views on the millennium. If you should be a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or a millennialist. We could use graphs and lecture between all the differences and and try to urge you to make a choice. But uh, but I honestly have no interest in that. (laughs) I think it's counterproductive uh, in thinking of how John wants us to read the book of Revelation for formation. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't go study. We have, we have a booklet that we put together just for the series. The internet is like a black hole of information. If you want to take that risk and start diving into that, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, but I think that this is sort of a futile discussion, especially when it comes to preaching, because all three of those scenarios fit within the bounds of Orthodox Christian faith. Plus... When Jesus shows up, you're always going to be able to change your mind, right? So you can hold to it up until Jesus comes and you're like, oh, it's wrong. And Jesus is going to forgive you and you can change your mind. So it doesn't matter. Instead, what I'd like to do with this passage, instead of it being kindling for debate, I think when we see it correctly, this is kindling for mission. John wants to start a wildfire of gospel renewal. He wants the church to live like missionaries, the people that God made them to be. So the question is, what does it mean for a church to be on mission? What does it mean for us to be missionaries? Now, we use this language a lot. Like I just said in my announcement, there were were a family of missionary servants learning how to live all of life to the glory of Jesus. It's on our website. It's on our walls. We, we, We use this language often because this is a part of who we are. We could even say, that, that this is part of the DNA of Sacred City Church. We're a church that's committed to the gospel, community, and mission. Those are the three core values of who we are. And it's not just our identity as a church. It trickles down into the identity as individuals who are following Jesus. Every Christian is, is part of a gospel community on mission. Now, last week... 
I talked about how the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament is one big story of how God saves sinners. It's, and we come to the gospel. It's the message of how God has ultimately done that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That, that we are saved. We saw this last week. We are saved by the testimony of Jesus. That he lived the perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He was buried and resurrected by the power of God. And by the power of that resurrection, he is renewing not just people, but all of the earth. And next week, we're going to start to see the scope of this worldwide renewal, or even you could say the cosmos-wide renewal. And let me tell you, it's a happy ending. Right? We've, we've gone through the dark parts to come to this bright and shining Moment And this renewal that Jesus is doing that we'll get into next week, chapters 21 and 22, this renewal is an external work which begins internally. It begins with renewing people, the broken and sinful humanity and transforming them. Now, this happens when we put our faith in Jesus. We trust in Jesus. And, and when we do that, we go from being orphans of wrath, people who are separated from God, even hostile. The scripture tells us we were enemies of God. And it's by his great love with which he loves us that he, he, he sets his love on us, he saves us, he adopts us into his own family. And so as a church, we are brothers and sisters who are united by the blood of Christ. And in being united and turning into this family of God, we are a new community who is established by the gospel. It's not our common interest. It's not being sharing the same social economic status. It's not by our, our racial or cultural norms that we adopt together. The thing that makes us a gospel family is the gospel, and that's why God's family is so diverse. Now, when we're called to be God's part of God's gospel family, we're also called into God's family business of mission. That used to be the way. Your, your last name used to tell you what your profession was. My last name is Schmidt, German for you know, Smith. So I would have something to do with a blacksmith or forging metal or forging something. I would inherit, inherit my parents' work, their occupation. That would become my own. And so the same is true that when we're adopted into God's family, we become about what he's about. And scripture shows us that God is a missional God. This is the missio Dei. That God is concerned with pursuing, seeking, and saving the lost. We see this in the way that the Father sends the Son. It was God's plan from the beginning of time to send his only begotten Son into the world to save those who would believe in him. And then Jesus, when he is, ascends into heaven, he says, I'm going to send you someone else. He's going to send you the, the helper, the Holy Spirit, who's, who's not just going to be a Jesus next to you, not just God next to you, but God living inside of you. So the Father sends the Son, and the Son sends the Spirit, and the Spirit lives inside and occupies the hearts of those who believe in Jesus. And then as God's chosen people, we become God's sent people. That the Spirit inside of us sends us Maybe to new places. Some of us might be missionaries and we move to a brand new place. But for most of us, that means God's sending us into places where we already are. In our jobs, in our neighborhoods, at the gym, school, the places where we already go. But now we go as God's missionaries. Because what God has done for us in adopting us, setting his love on us and bringing us into his family he wants to do for other people who don't know him yet. In fact, right now, today, as we're kind of light on attendance, the empty pews, to me, signify the people in our city who are not yet here. There are people that God has elect, he has chosen to adopt into his family that just don't know who God is yet. They don't know the gospel. And so as his children, being about his family business, were sent to do the work of God in adding to our Family, And so this is the special part of what we're doing. God doesn't just go away to work. You know, the kids get left at home. God says, hey, come to work with me. 
Come, come work alongside of me and see what I'm doing. Be part of what I'm doing here in our cities. Tim Keller says that God is like a spiritual tornado. God never sucks us in without the intention of spitting us back out. And that's what happens when we become gospel people. He brings us into his family and then he sends us back out as missionaries to live, to proclaim the love of God and his love for sinners as a way of saving them. Now, most people, when we hear the word missionaries, it's kind of intimidating language. Or maybe you've, been familiar, you've done a short-term missionary trip. You've gone to Mexico or wherever you've, you've gone, and you've done mission for a week, and that's been sort of uh, your idea of missions. Or, 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 or missionaries are those people who are sort of elite Christians who really heed God's call, and, and they sell everything that they own, and they move to faraway places, Africa, China, wherever God would call them with some sort of mission agency. They, they go and they learn a foreign language and the, the, the new culture. And, and there is biblical precedent for these things. Paul himself was a missionary going to different places. Paul is one of the, the guys who wrote most of the New Testament. And he'd go from place to place, learning the culture, being among the people, but proclaiming what God has done for us. But only a small percentage of people will be called to this global mission. Right, to, to leave home and go far away. And maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe God has put on your heart a desire for global missions, reaching the places that have not been reached yet. But most people would say, oh, being a missionary? That's not for me. And then you kind of go through in your mind all of the reasons why you're unqualified or unfit or incapable of being a missionary. You say, I, I, don't, I don't know that. I couldn't do that. I don't know the Bible well enough. I, I, don't, I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know how to act. I don't even know what language some of these people speak. I would say that's probably most of us, right? Kind of, eh, missionary is not really my thing. And so we write off the idea that we could possibly be called as missionaries. We think, oh, I'll just leave that to the pros. But even that exposes a flattened understanding of what God's definition is to be a missionary. Because being a missionary isn't just for the elite Christians. In fact, every Christian is a missionary. It's a matter of if you're a good missionary or you're a bad missionary. See, everybody, no matter where you are in life, anybody who believes in Jesus is a missionary. You're sent to the places that you already are, your school, your work, your neighborhood, your family, your gym. You've been set, sent there, not by accident, but with great intention. Because that could very well be a pocket of our city where God has not yet been introduced. And now you're there. God sent you there on purpose. And as we live as missionaries, very little of our life will be spent preaching. Uh, the reality is very, very few people who are in the pews right now are, are going to be up behind this pulpit. And that's okay. Being a missionary means that we demonstrate, we, we display, we show the gospel. We show what the kingdom of God is like through our actions. But there is also the component of using our, our words. So we live intentionally by demonstrating, offering people a taste of what it's like to be part of God's family. And in doing so, offering the acceptance and love and compassion and, and even a, a desire for people to become the best versions of themselves is a picture of the gospel. We live in a way that blesses and serves others. We want to celebrate the things that God has done in, in sort of the, the, if I could say, the secular world and in the sacred world. Jesus showed up to parties in the New Testament. We want to party with the people that we want to reach. We want to practice generosity and hospitality. Last week I said that the dining room table is perhaps the greatest place where you can exercise your missional 
capacity just by having friends over. We want to demonstrate just by opening up our homes, opening up our lives, demonstrate what God has done for us. But it is possible to show people Jesus, to demonstrate and to do it in a beautiful way, but fail to talk about Jesus. And I think that's, that's kind of the danger of when we talk about being a missional church. We want to show Jesus we want to provide an experience of a gospel culture, but we have to speak about Jesus as well. This is essential to the mission of God because in Revelation, 20, or in Revelation 19, the last chapter we were in, Jesus Christ himself is labeled the word of God. Now, yes, he was the word that was made flesh. Physical, you could see him, you could touch him, you could hear him. But he is the word, and words are meant to be spoken. Now, Jesus demonstrated this balance between word and deed in his own ministry. He taught people about what the kingdom of God was like. He gave parables. He pointed to the fact that he was the Savior, the Lamb of God. He was the, the, the Passover Lamb, tracing all the way back to the book of Exodus when God's people were delivered from Egypt. So he proclaimed the good news that God was saving sinners. He's also demonstrating that by pushing back the darkness, by casting out demons, by healing people of their sickness and their infirmities. So there's both, the, the word and deed, demonstration and vocalization of the gospel. But Paul, in, in his book, his letter to the Romans, he, he emphasizes how important it is for people of God to speak about Jesus. This is what he says in Revelation chapter 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? And he goes in verse 17, he says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. It is essential for us as Christians who are sent out on mission to proclaim, not just demonstrate, but proclaim the good news to be a mouthpiece of God's redemptive plan. Now, again, this is probably a point where some, I don't know about talking up like this. I don't know about sharing Christ. What if I do it wrong? And unless you're a gifted evangelist where God has kind of given you this, this disposition to really love engaging with nonbelievers and sharing your faith, this probably stresses you out. It stresses me out. And I think if we look at the church, it's, it's easy to see we're, we're not alone. And while we might not be alone, there, there could be a great danger to say, okay, at least I'm not the only one doing it. Instead, we need to be, okay, how can we as a people engage in this? You might have the same pushback toward being an evangelist of, of sharing the gospel as you do with the idea of mission, it exposes some insecurities. I don't know the right things to say. Uh, maybe you have this fear, right? If I share the gospel, if I talk about Jesus, will this person still like me? Right? Is, is our relationship completely ruined from now until the future, or, or, or is there, are we gonna get through this? Maybe it's just a matter of laziness, right? It's too hard. It's, it's inconvenient. I like the comfort that I have secured in my life. Or even it's frustration. Maybe you are engaging in mission, right? You're, you're sharing your faith with other people. And it's like, I've invested in these people. I've told them about Jesus time and time again. And I'm not seeing any fruit from it. So in frustration, it's like, did I, did I waste my time? Now, these are real insecurities. These are real things that we deal with as we fight for our identity as missionaries. 
And so it's here in our insecurities, in our apathy, in our discouragement that Revelation 20 meets us and reframes our minds and our hearts for mission. And when we believe what we find in Revelation 20, when we act upon what we see in Revelation 20, it becomes the pilot light that could set our city on blaze for Jesus. So if you would, with me, turn to Revelation chapter 20. There's a pew Bible in front of you. It's toward the last book of Bible, so it's towards the end of it. Otherwise, we'll have it up here on the screen for you. Let's take a look at uh, Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. So this is a, a vision that John is receiving here from Jesus, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized that dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Jump down to verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That's, that's an Old Testament allusion to representing uh, Gog was a king, and Magog was a, a nation that he ruled over that were opposed. They were enemies of God. And so John is using this Old Testament uh, imagery to say to Satan as Magog and Magog, the people who follow him in deception, and Satan gathers them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were, they were to be tormented day and night forevermore and ever. Now, if you can recall last week, you might be wondering, it seems strange that there's yet another battle scene here in the book of Revelation. We, we saw a big battle scene last week, and so you're wondering, like, how many battles are there going to be here? This is not another battle. Rather, this is, like John has done in the past, a progressive recapitulation, a retelling of the same story from a different angle. So there's, there's one final battle, but this happens to be from a different angle. Now, in chapters 18 and 19, um, the battle was noting the demise of the underlords of darkness that John had pointed out before. There was the, the great prostitute of Babylon, who is, represents the systemic injustices and ways that God's people have, or the people have been misled and deceived. We've seen the, the false prophet and the antichrist who are under workers who are working for Satan. And in the last couple chapters, we've seen how Jesus has defeated and eliminated these enemies in reverse order of their appearance. And now chapter 19 deals with Satan. The, the chief epicenter of evil. And he's ID'd in a couple of different ways here in the first, first, couple, first couple verses. He, he's ID'd as Satan. Uh, he's, he's identified as the dragon. In, and that takes us back to Revelation chapter 12 where there's this battle between God and Satan, the one who rebelled against God. It says, the ancient serpent, well, that takes us back to Genesis chapter three where Adam and Eve were deceived in the garden. And so he's saying here, the one who's responsible for all the evil in the world, Jesus is dealing with him once and for all. But the thing about Satan, is, as we see how he's represented, we see him as a deceiver, Now, you might wonder, like, like, if all of the enemies are going to the same place, right, because we're seeing here, they're all going to end up in the lake of fire, which is metaphorical for something worse than a lake of fire. Why not just lump all of these evil people together and deal with them once and for all? And, 
And the reason for that is John is trying to show us something more than just the future, more than what will happen one day, that evil will be defeated and it will be ended once and for all. He's trying to expose to us our present reality. He's trying to tell us in Revelation 20 that we currently live in the era with the greatest potential for gospel fruitfulness. There has been no better time in all of the history of mankind for us to be missionaries. Do you realize that? No, it might not seem like it. Because maybe you've been on mission to your friend for years. You've been sharing the gospel with your family member for years and there's been no avail. You've been praying for them. You've been sharing the, the message of Christ. You've been demonstrating Christ to them. But it seems like there's always something standing in their way before they trust Jesus. There's some sort of fallacy or, or worldview or some sort of excuse that keeps them from moving toward Jesus. Or, there, or maybe it's a scenario where there's not enough in their way, where life is too good. It's, it's too comfortable. There's, they don't perceive any sort of need for help or salvation or rescue. But when you look at verses one through three, let me show you what I mean by this being the best time for mission. Because verses one through three, we see an angel come and seize Satan. He's got a key in one hand, a chain in the other. He, he grabs him, he binds him, he locks him up, throws him into the abyss. It's sort of like a, a, a prison. There's no other exit, there's no way out. Satan is trapped. And so he shows us that Satan is limited in his ability, that he's constrained. His powers are weakened, especially with his ability to deceive. Now, since Genesis 3, Satan has become a very good, he's become an expert in the craft of deception. In Romans 1, as we uh, uh, travel through that first chapter of Romans 1, Paul shows us that the result of being deceived by Satan was that humanity now began actively suppressing the truth. That Satan presented a lie, a false reality, and as humans, we decided to live into that, to buy into what he was saying. And reject the truth. Now, think of this in terms of a beach ball. You know, you, you go to a, a pool and kids playing with a beach ball and there's this game you know, and you, you grab the beach ball and you hold on to it and you try to submerge the beach ball. You know what I'm talking about? And it's so buoyant that, you know, you kind of roll around, you're trying to keep it down, you're pushing it down. See, that's, that's what humanity was doing with the truth. We didn't want it. There was something about the lie that Satan presented that had some sort of appeal to us that the, the truth did not. So we, we pushed it down. And by suppressing the truth, humanity became futile in our thinking. It says that our, our foolish hearts were dark, and this is all Romans chapter 1. Claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchanged truth for lies. Just pushing that beach ball down, hopefully that one day it would sink. Now the reality is that there is not one single person who is immune to, be getting, to, to being deceived by, by Satan. And because of the way that humanity progressed throughout the redemptive story of Scripture and into where we are right now, it seems like there was little hope for us to embrace the truth about God. See, but this passage shows us that the beach ball's always going to come up to the surface, that, that the truth is too buoyant to be kept down. And while Satan is under lock and key, his ability to deceive the nations through systems and powers is suspended. Now, that's what makes it a great time for mission, because right now, Satan is most vulnerable that he's not able to deceive like he had done in the past. Now, most people look at this and say, well, that, that looks like a future day. Like if, if Satan's bound and this flourishing of the Christian mission uh, were to happen, it doesn't seem like the time is now. It must be 
a future vision. But the only way you can arrive at that conclusion is if you use literal interpretation, which would be inconsistent with the rest of the imagery in Revelation. Because Satan is not physically bound. He's a spiritual creature. He's spiritually bound. And in being spiritually bound, he has less influence over the world in which he was called the prince of the powers of darkness. So, I'd like to submit to you that, that Satan is currently bound. Jesus did this in his first coming. Jesus did a lot in his first coming. He, he lived the perfect life. He died for our sins. But in Mark chapter 3, he hints at what he was doing in coming to earth. He was coming to plunder Satan's house, to take back what Satan had took from him. And in order to plunder Satan, Mark chapter 3, verse 27 tells us to plunder Satan, he had to bind Satan. So this is real time. That Satan is currently bound and the time for mission is now. But if that's the case, why doesn't it feel like it? Why is there still, why is it still like people, like people have been, uh, had, had their eyes pulled over, they're still being deceived. If, if Satan's bound... Well, just think of this. This week, El Chapo, the, the Mexican drug lord, was sentenced to prison, some super high-security prison um, out in the middle of nowhere in Colorado. All right. he, he was the head of one of the biggest cartels, perhaps in, in the history of cartels, one of the most powerful, evil men of our time. And while he is... Physically bound. He's behind bars right now at this moment. He's, he's, he's trapped. He's concealed. There's, there's no influence that he has in the outside world. The systems that he set, set up are still running their, their ways. Like the, the, the cartel hasn't stopped selling and, and transporting drugs because El Chapo's behind bars. They're still doing it. And it's the same way with, with Satan being bound. That his underlords, the, the ones that we saw destroyed in chapter 19, actually aren't destroyed in this, the real-time plane of this story. That they're still working to deceive, to, to carry out the mission of, of their boss. So it's not that all deception has been eliminated, but it has been weakened. There will still be people who reject Jesus Christ. But the good news is that that can change. Just because they're deceived right now and they push Jesus away doesn't mean that they'll always be that way. And so this is where we can have great hope in our mission. There has been no better time for us to be heralds, to be proclaimers of what Christ has done for us and to demonstrate that gospel message. And have hope that, that when people encounter this word, which is, we're told is, is the power of God, the word of God is his power. People encounter Jesus. The, the, the gospel message takes root in their heart and it grows. And not yet believers become believers. They become adopted just as we've been adopted. For them, it's the beach ball coming out. Right, that, that's what we can be praying for, that the, the truth would rise to the top, that they would see things clearly, not be deceived anymore. But knowing that there's great opportunity to be effective in mission doesn't necessarily remove all of our obstacles. Right? There, there are still plenty of insecurities that are underlying in our lives as we live for Jesus. Right? There, there's a question, if I speak up, if I tell somebody about Jesus, Will this person still like me if they don't want to hear what I have to say? Will, will, will that affect my reputation, my image? It could be very well that some people are afraid of losing friends and family, being, being labeled as a, a weirdo, socially ostracized, criticized. And when we take an honest examination of our hearts, when these insecurities are rising, it's not that the, these insecurities are, are well, the, the fact is that these insecurities 
are selfish. They're about me more than they are about Jesus or others. It's like I don't want my life to get harder. We tend to think about the, uh, instead of thinking of the upside in another person's life, we, we think about what's my downside? What, what's the risk for me instead of the reward for the gospel and for Christ and for that person coming to know who Jesus is? Now, in some places, the stakes are really high. Like, like we're not just talking about people being made fun of or marginalized. We're talking about people being killed for sharing the gospel. You go to places like North Korea or communist China, Muslim nations where people come out of Muslim belief and tradition and are persecuted by their own family, even wanted dead, disowned. That sort of devotion to the gospel could cost you your life. There was a pastor who recently had, had hit the... the um, he wrote a letter because in his ministry he was concerned because he was so faithful to Christ and the word of God. He knew that the time would come where eventually the Chinese government would try to shut him down. And in preparation for that moment, he wrote a letter to his church and to be shared with the other churches in China and then eventually got shared with the global church about the gist of it was even though I'm in jail, I might even be dead at this point, is what he wrote. And this is months ahead of time. I might be dead at this point, but I want you to know it was worth it. It was worth it. Putting my life on the line so that somebody else could come and find eternal life in Christ. It was worth it. We read of martyrs, of sort of heroes of the faith, like, like Jim Elliott, who put their life on the line. He was actually killed in order to share the gospel with people who had not even heard of Jesus, who had no idea who he was. Now, what would compel a person to live with such confidence in the face of such hostility? I think the answer to that is in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 20. John has another vision. He says, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So, so he has something else going on here. It's not just Jesus sitting on the thrones. He says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony. And I assure you that the, it's not just for the dismembered Christians who were literally beheaded, but for all Christians who lost their life and faithfulness to Jesus, but not just the martyrs, but to those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their heads. Now, if you're jumping into this, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but, but contextually, John is saying, these are the people who didn't compromise. These are the people who didn't turn their backs on Jesus, even in the face of social influence, of adopting the, the cultural norms. These are the people who stayed true. So martyrs and ordinary Christians alike, what gives them confidence? They knew the station that they would occupy in heaven would be far superior to whatever station that they had in life. You see that? The reason why Jim Elliot, why Pastor Wang Yi could put their life on the line is because they knew that this, mo this, this life was temporary. And the life that awaited was far greater to reign with Christ Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, to be absent with flesh is to be present with our Lord. Ephesians 2, 6 says that, that in being in Christ and adopted into God's family, we are seated with Jesus Christ in heaven. Now, again, if we look at this and we're anticipating a literal reign on earth, that really doesn't come until chapter 23, 22. Excuse me. But this reign that we see is happening in heaven that the people who are deceased, who have lost their life, who either were martyred or who remained faithful until the end, are reigning with Jesus in this sort of intermediary phase. Not to be confused with purgatory. It's this phase of we live our life, we die, 
Our bodies will cease to exist. There's this time, Scripture talks about uh, the dead going to Sheol or to Abraham's side, this, this sort of intermediary phase. And we saw that even way back in chapter 3, maybe, chapter 2, where we see the souls of the saints underneath the altar. Right, this phase that, that marks uh, not quite the beginning of the end, but this period in between where Jesus will come back again and the resurrection that we were promised will take place. I got a little detour there. But these are the people who are faithful to Jesus until the end. And our assurance of reigning with Christ offers real-time confidence in this life now to boldly proclaim Jesus inward and in deed. Now, you would think if there are men and women who are willing to risk their lives for the sake of the gospel spreading, to see the kingdom of God advance on earth as it is in heaven, don't you think that we ought to honor those sacrifices of those people by living faithfully to Jesus on mission here in the Quad Cities. They lost their life. Will you lose your reputation for Jesus? The threat of losing your reputation, being labeled as a weirdo for the sake of, of the gospel seems so insignificant when you compare it to what you've already gained in Christ. It seems so insignificant when you consider what other people could gain by your foolishness for Christ. Paul tells us, uh, this about us in Philippians 3. He says, I count everything to be a loss. He says, my whole life is trash because it's in comparison to the surpassing worth and joy that I found in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Can you say it's all a loss because I've gained so much with Christ? See, when we, when we view it this way, this, is unlo- this unlocks our confidence for mission here and now. It makes us courageous in our missionary life. But even as we become courageous in the gospel, it does not eliminate the risk of failure. And we hate failure. Nobody likes to be a failure. Nobody wants to be a loser. In fact, most people would rather not try at all than to take a risk and fail. It's it's an act of self-preservation. And in a lot of ways, fear of failure, this isn't just true in mission, but in all of life, a fear of failure is a limiting factor in our lives. That's why a lot of people don't set goals. If I set a goal, I might not hit it. Then I'm a failure. And so in the same way, we, we tend to shy away from mission. We, we don't give ourselves to the work that God's called us to. We don't live on mission because we think we might get it wrong or we might fail or that maybe the gospel won't work. But in Revelation 20, we see until the day that Jesus returns, there will always be people who reject Jesus. There will always be people who hear but don't believe. Look at, look again at verse seven and eight. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are At the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. Their number is like the sea of the sand, and they march and they come up against the camp of the saints. We see a multitude of people led in rebellion against Jesus, led by Satan. Now, by these people existing, does that mean the church has failed at mission? Does that mean that God is unsuccessful in converting people to faith? The only way that we can fail as missionaries, 
is if we do not live a life where we are speaking and displaying the gospel. That's what it means to fail at mission. It's to not do it. It's to reject the DNA of our church. It's to reject the DNA that God has given us in the gospel. But we need to redefine what success and mission is. Because success in living on mission isn't evaluated by the number of converts. It's not evaluated by how many people you've led to Christ or had say the prayer. Success in mission is faithfulness to mission. It's pressing on when you've been dismissed. It's, it's staying faithful and proclaiming when nobody wants to hear what you have to say. And as we are faithful to the mission, then we start to see fruit of the mission. We start to see people coming to faith, not by what we do. We, I mean, we get to be part of it, but, but the faith that someone needs to be saved is a gift from God. But we get to play a part. We get to step into these new opportunities to share what God has done. And listen, and God is working in a way right now where he's taking away the number of the multitude that is coming up against him here in verses uh, 7 and 8. And he's transplanting people who are enemies of God to citizens in the beloved city, to members of God's kingdom and family. The reality is that Jesus is such a good shepherd that not a single one of his lambs are missing. Now, Christians, as Christians, we can't save anyone. We can't be Jesus. But we do get to point to Jesus, no matter what we say or how often we proclaim the gospel. God is at work in those things, and he is the one who regenerates hearts. And in his faithfulness, because he is faithful. In fact, that's the label. Again, Jesus is labeled faithful and true back in Revelation 19. Because of his faithfulness to his promise, God saves all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Going back to Romans 1, Romans 10, sorry. Our role is to tell people about Jesus. See, that's what success in mission is. And so we can give our lives to mission, confident mission, without fear of failure. Because the only failure in mission is not to live as a missionary. And in our efforts and in declaring the truth, the, the beach ball pops to the top. God prevails. He triumphs over the deception of Satan and people see Jesus for who he is. And they cling to him as the Savior and Lord. But even in verses 7 and 8, I mean, when you put, when you make the dichotomy of there are those who are in God's kingdom and there are those who are God's enemies, that sounds like an arrogant thing to say. Like to say some are going to be saved and some it's going to be really hot for them. This is a core conviction of Orthodox Christianity. Because there are people who will reject the Bible, who will reject Christianity, who will reject Jesus. And there are churches that are they, they realize that that sounds so harsh and not great, and they'll tiptoe. They'll start to, to tiptoe in the folly of universalism. And they'll, they'll downplay the significance of Jesus, the fact that he actually had to come and die the death to save sinners like you and me. And it mocks the gospel. It downplays the holiness of God and his compassion for people like us.
But this is the reality. There are two types of people. You look, at, look at verse 12. I actually started at 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead. So it's just this idea of there's a big white throne, and all of a sudden, everything that's not a human vanishes. All that's left are God and the people he created. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 15, and everyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's your fire and brimstone passage. We can't ignore it. See, that passage tells us the only hope that we have, the only hope we have of escaping the second death. Like, because here's the reality. Christians only have one death and two lives. Right? We live our life now. You die Eternal life comes later. Non-believers have two deaths and one life. They live their life now. They die. Judgment comes. They're di they die the second death, thrown into the lake of fire. The only hope we have to escape that, to, to come out on top in, in this courtroom setting, is to be written in the book of life. And you say, well, what about the, the good people, right? Verse 13 says that people are judged according to what they had done, right? So there has to be some sort of karma or some sort of moralistic balance that, you know, if, if the good outweighs the bad, then maybe they'll get in too. But that's not the case. Being a good person. In fact, even if you trace it back to what he's talking about here, he's, he's talking about the bride of Christ who is clothed in radiant beauty. These clothes she puts on were given to her. And these clothes she puts on are the good deeds which she is now enabled to do because she belongs to Jesus. So moralism, legalism won't work. To, to bank on that working when you stand before the throne of God is to be deceived. And the reality is it would be impossible for us to overcome the bad thoughts, the bad actions, the bad words we've used to hurt ourselves and others and uh, definitely against God. It would be impossible for us to heap up our good works higher than the the bad things that we've done in life. Now, if that's the case, if we're banking on moralism, if we're banking on good outweighing the bad, then nobody would escape the lake of fire, which represents eternal separation from God. The only way to find yourself out, the only way to get out of that scenario is to be written in the Lamb's book of life. That is, to receive the gift of grace, to call upon the name of Jesus. This is why Christians cannot walk with a swagger. Christians who are, oh, at least I'm not like those people, they don't get it. They don't understand. Because the only difference between a Christian and a not yet Christian is that they've received a gift from God. And so receiving this gift produces humility and compassion for not yet believers. Because the reality is that could have been me. 
And by God's grace, I'm trusting that he's gonna do a work in their life where they come to see Jesus for who he is and they put their hope and their trust in him as well. See, this, this reality burdened the Apostle Paul so badly. Like, like the, rea- the reality is that there, there's some who are gonna enjoy eternity with Jesus and some who are gonna not enjoy anything about eternity apart from Jesus. He's burdened so bad by this, Paul says, I'd rather be cut off. I'd rather experience that separation so that some might be saved. Is this your heart toward the lost? Because here is a genuine representation of compassion. It's self-sacrifice. Is that your heart toward the lost, or are you indifferently quiet? When you, when you think about the people in your life who don't know Jesus yet, man, are you just burdened for them? To, to have a debate with God, like, God, man, I'd rather you just take me out so they could be brought in. See, this is at the heart of Christian mission because this is Jesus' heart for us. Do you realize that? Jesus longed for you so badly to know the truth, to know the reality of what God is like, to know his grace and his kindness, his compassion and his mercy, his gentleness, his steadfastness, his faithfulness, his mighty, his power, his grace, He wanted you to know so bad all of those things instead of knowing the full force wrath of God coming down on you. That Jesus put himself in our place. That's what he did on the cross. On the cross, the wrath of God was brought down and crushed Jesus. Jesus was pushed out so you could be brought in. Jesus left his comfort in heaven to come pursue you. He stood in your place to take the punishment for your sins because that, that list of bad deeds was mighty tall. And Jesus said, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna take all of that. I'm gonna take all the ugly in on myself. I'm going to credit you, believer, you who trust in me. I'm going to credit you with my righteousness, my perfect record. So now the only thing standing between us and eternity of happiness with God is are you going to believe it? You've you've heard it. Are you going to suppress the truth or are you going to Grab hold of the truth. I think that when we grab hold of the truth, we realize what Jesus has done. We we get blown away. We're in awe of what God has done for us, that he would be mindful of sinners like you and me and go to such lengths to get us back that we want to become like Jesus in that that we want to live on mission. We have a new lens which we view people through. Now, we can't know who is a Christian and who's not a Christian or who's not a believer or who is a believer. In, in the ultimate sense, only God knows that. But we look through the world and we, to the world through this lens and say, who, does, who do I know that needs to know Jesus? And because what Jesus has done for us, we live like missionaries and we start in our own backyard. Father, we thank you. We thank you. By by every measure, this is good news. That you have sought after us when we wanted nothing to do with you. That you went, you literally went to hell and back to get us. What a savior. What grace. 
Father, I pray that you would increase our faith in that this morning, that we would know that no, no ounce of moralism, no bit of legalism, no bit of religiosity is going to be able to grant us access to eternity with you. The only thing that can save us is the blood of Christ. And would you just light a fire in our bellies to be people who proclaim in word and in deed just how great you are. Father, would you begin a new work today, starting internally, working its way externally to see our city revived, to know who you are, to live all in for you. I pray, Lord, that you would add to our numbers, that the the, the empty seats that are represented this morning would be filled in a year, that your work would be so non-ignorable in our cities that it's evident that the gospel is real. It's the power of God for sinners for salvation. Would that be our one hope, our one confidence that we belong to you? This meal reminds us of that, of the lengths in which Jesus went to, to bring us into your family, Father. Would we celebrate and rejoice? And as we come, would it be a way of us counting the cost of following you, of experiencing the grace that you've given us to say, I'm willing to put my life on the line. I'm willing to be labeled as a weirdo, to be marginalized for the sake of the gospel so that somebody, anybody that would hear would come to know you. That's our prayer, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.